0: Back to the Fourth Way Podcast. In this episode, I had the privilege of speaking with Cody Cook. Now, there's been a question that I've had for a while since my discussion with Dr. Christa Yiannopoulos, in which um, he said that basically for Christian anarchism, you have a lot of of Christian anarchists who just dismiss the resurrection and miracles, or or don't find it central you've got quite a lot of Christian anarchists who are on the more liberal end of the theological spectrum. And that's something that's kind of difficult for me to to get rid of the resurrection, but uh, also in terms of how I was raised and and what I grew up believing, um, just difficult for me to kind of sift through that so many Christian anarchists are on the liberal end of the spectrum. Now, Cody is someone who comes from the other end of the spectrum, more of the conservative uh, end, and he's somebody who believes in biblical inerrancy. And so I wanted to have a conversation with Cody in which he was able to explain how he can come to the conclusion of Christian nonviolence and Christian anarchism from a conservative viewpoint. I loved this discussion with Cody. Um, I also loved reading his book in preparation for uh, this episode, his book, entitled Unhitched, and I'd highly recommend that to you. Um, And I particularly liked not just the answers that Cody gave, but I really appreciated the emphasis on on grace and unity uh, that he had, because uh, regardless of of what the ultimate answers are, I think that uh, that is a Christ-like depiction of what all Christians are to be. So here it is. The discussion with Cody Cook. All right, so why don't why don't uh, you just start out by giving a little introduction of what you think is is pertinent?
1: Oh gosh, well, so based on the questions that you gave me, or or just uh, um, yeah, sure, <laughs> yeah, yeah, about Christian anarchism in context of um, like a biblical Christian anarchism, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah. So well. I mean, I've got some kind of notes and stuff that is what maybe we'll get into it, but um, if I were to try to summarize, um, I guess I would say that um, I think of what I'm doing as sort of a bridge between um, those who have a really high view of scripture, but tend to not be Christian anarchists or pacifists, nonviolent, um, and those who do hold those positions, but don't really root them in a an exegetically um, uh, centered uh, approach to scripture. Um, because I think that we talk past each other. And and I also think that what happens is, uh, when people kind of on the left say, um, you know, Christian anarchism and Christian pacifism, but we don't get that out of the Bible because the Bible doesn't support our position. (laughs) What they're saying to other Christians who do uh, value the Bible is you really don't need to look into Christian anarchism. You don't need to look into Christian pacifism because it's really not biblically rooted. And that's the most important thing to you. It's kind of just something that we, you know pull out of little places in the bible and inconsistently apply because we like it. Um and so I, what what I think I'm I'm interested in doing is building a biblical case for this position because I think it's there. I think it's strong. Um and and I think uh you know those on the left kind of give a you know give away the farm or whatever when they say um you know this is our position but it's not rooted in scripture.
0: All right. Yeah. Uh, good introduction we'll, we'll, uh, leads right into the first question here, um, because I think you know most pacifists and anarchists that I run into are are pretty far to the liberal end of the spectrum in regard to their theology and and how we read the Bible. Um, you know, I, there are a lot of universalists. There are a lot of people who don't believe in biblical inerrancy, which which I'd categorize as uh, you know a, a bit more liberal. Um, and I think. I think it seems to be that way because, you know, a face value reading of the Bible, I think you'd probably agree that at face value, um, there's a whole lot of violence in the Bible and it seems like God is condoning a whole lot of violence. God is doing some things, whether it's slavery or, um, you know, what people would call genocide or, or whatnot uh, with the Canaanites and things. Uh, there's a lot of pro-government sorts of texts, pro-king texts. Uh, there's a lot that seems to just fly in the face of anarchism and nonviolence. So if you take an inerrant view of the Bible, um, it seems that you should end up a statist uh, and and a violent statist. Um, But you take a conservative approach to the Bible, which which you mentioned. So how do you end up at the position that you do when the Bible seems so clearly against that?
1: Yeah, so... um Let me see here. I was going through my notes here because it some of the stuff you just said. But yeah, so I think um, there, there's a, some research I did a few years ago um, um, for a book that I wrote called Fight the Powers. And uh, one of the things that um, came out of that study is that we have a sort of a complicated uh, approach to uh, God and the state. And, um, you know, on the one hand, uh, Scripture teaches that God is sovereign uh, and that he can use the state or use kings or whatever. Um, you know, Romans 13 is obviously the go-to passage for something like that, but it also suggests that behind, um, all political powers, uh, there are spiritual powers and that those spiritual powers are, uh, ultimately negative, right? Um, and so th- th- you can kind of talk about the, like the divine counsel or some of the work of like Dr. Michael Heiser that is kind of useful for this, although he doesn't really apply it to the political realm that much, but scripture does. So, um, uh, you know, Deuteronomy 32 speaks about how, uh, verses 8 through 9, about how at the, at the Tower of Babel, God disinherited the nations and gave them up to these other spiritual powers. Uh, in Psalm 89, or sorry, Psalm 82, uh, we read that those spiritual powers are essentially corrupt and that the injustice that we see is at least partly their responsibility, the injustice we see in the world, um, because they're supposed to be superintending the nations and they, they do a terrible job. Uh, we read it in Daniel. So Daniel chapter ten, for example, we read that behind uh, a kingdom like Persia is this angelic prince. Same with this, uh, the, the the power of Greece, and that the these sort of machinations of empire and war are are, are being sort of pulled on or, or pushed forward behind the scenes by these spiritual powers. And so, um, you know, that by the time you get to the New Testament, you have Satan telling Jesus that he. Um, has power over the nations and can give that power to whomever he pleases. Jesus never corrects him. It seems to be uh, something that Jesus, I mean, Jesus quotes scripture all the time to tell him where he's wrong. He never quotes a scripture there. Um, At least in that temptation narrative he does. Um, And so I I think, you know, there is a a complicated relationship between political power and God, but I think the old Testament is, uh, you know, sort of interesting because it provides this, this sort of exception because whereas the nations belong to these, you know, what are called the sons of God, these sort of angelic beings who are corrupted. Um, Israel is like God's special people. Right. And he tells Israel, you know, if you want to have a King, you can have a King. <laughs> and, uh, he even, uh, you know, creates these laws that sometimes carry the death penalty for breaking. Um, there are uh, at least a couple of wars that, uh, God mm-hmm. seems to support Israel going, uh, Uh, Into fighting, so we have to sort of deal with that, um, and also deal with the fact that the New Testament tells us something different. Um, So, I think that the New Testament is very clear that for Christians there is no king but Christ, uh, and that those of us who claim to be part of His kingdom, uh, we are not fighting with carnal weapons because we know that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So there is a difference. So when when Jesus talks to Pilate, uh, Pilate says. Um, you know aren't you this king? how come you're standing here in front of me about to be executed if you're supposed to be this this king with you know with armies and followers and so on and so forth and Jesus says, well my kingdom is not now of this world if it were my servants would fight which suggests a kind of temporality to this the situation so we have uh, the Old Testament where you have a physical kingdom on earth with a king and um, the citizens of that kingdom might fight for the king or for the kingdom right but Jesus tells us in the new covenant, we have a kingdom that's not of this world because it's not of this world. It doesn't use, uh, weapons of warfare that are carnal or physical. It's a spiritual kingdom that fights spiritual wars. And so that takes it in a different direction. Um, I think, um, you know, when people, people see an incongruity here, at least in their mind, they say, well, violence is okay here, but it's not okay there. Um, I think that that can be troubling for somebody who is sort of starts with nonviolence instead of starting with the Bible, right? So if my, my central position is nonviolence, when I go to the Bible, I'm going to see a lot of things that I really like, and I'm going to see some things I really don't like. (laughs) And, and so you have, what ultimately has to happen is you have to do some theology and some reading and uh, try to square that away. Whereas I think my position was, well, let's start with the Bible and see what it says. And wow, look at that. It's really interesting. It supports nonviolence Um, (laughs) at least, you know now in this at this point, so maybe that wasn't the case with a the theocracy, but now it does. Um, I think that the mistake that like liberal Christian anarchists make is to assume that because we we are supposed to follow Jesus's model of nonviolence, that must mean that God can't kill or judge or condemn, and, and that isn't what Scripture teaches, and it's not what Jesus tells us. I mean, Jesus speaks of impending judgment regularly throughout the Gospels. Uh, Matthew seven, for example. Uh, those whom Jesus uh, is will not know at the judgment, using that language of, I never knew you, are excluded from the kingdom of heaven and they're thrown into the fire at God's command. Um, so, you know, there's some folks who want to sort of talk about a, a biblically centered approach or a flat hermeneutic, flat Bible hermeneutic versus a Jesus-centric hermeneutic. And that doesn't really pan out because Jesus is also going to say things that, that they don't like. Um, and so in Jesus affirms the old Testament, um, so, so anyway, in short, I've been talking for a while. My approach is to try to honor all that Jesus taught, which includes his view that the old Testament was divinely inspired wisdom and his statement that his kingdom is not now of this world. So his servants don't fight. Um, and, uh, that's going to look a little different than an approach that says, we're going to start with nonviolence. We're going to find the scriptures that agree with it. And then we're going to throw away the scriptures that don't. Um but I think the, the practical result is basically the same because the practical result is, as we are living now on this earth, Christ has called us to reject violence. Um, and you know God is God, and you know, we can get into divine prerogatives and stuff like that a little bit. Uh, but that that's a different question.
0: Yeah. By the way, you talk as much as you want to talk because this is this is an interview uh, where I'm asking you questions, so this isn't about me. So you talk.
1: Well, well I, I appreciate that, but I think it's more interesting when there's when there's engagement, and I I, uh, I have a tendency maybe to uh, to go on too long. So.
0: <laughs> all right, all right. I'll try to interrupt you some more. <laughs> okay.
1: Um, okay. So
0: I, I think what because I've I've grown up an um, errantist. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I would still classify myself as that because I haven't had any tipping points to move, to ch- change my paradigm. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with a lot of things like I, um, you know, I empathize with universalism and annihilationism, but I grew up ECT. And mm-hmm. so while I, I really, really resonate with those things, I just I haven't had enough to cause a paradigm shift mm-hmm. for me. But I think one of the things that I, I've realized with inerrancy is that um, what, what troubles me with, with maintaining a belief in inerrancy is that I think, I think nonviolence, the way that I see it, is that a lot of the nonviolent Christians ground nonviolence in the character of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you say that God can kind of decree something on, decree something off... You know, there are all kinds of things you can talk about there with with objective morality and 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 whatnot. Um, but even putting that to the side, it seems like the thing that's scary about that is that then nonviolent love is no longer grounded in the character of God. And and you know, in Matthew, I think it's five, we see you know the the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Uh, the peacemakers are the sons of God because you know that's what God is like. Um, and, and so I think with inerrancy, a lot of times you'll have, okay, I, I start with the Word of God, and when there are conflicts, I go with the Word. Whereas I think what, what the liberal group tends to do is to say, I start with the character of God, and when there's a conflict you know, between what the words say and the character of God, I go with the character. Of course, there's always the question, well, how do you know what the character is? Is it because sure. it's what the words tell you? And but I mean that that's kind of cyclical. You can kind of you can pitch that both ways. Um, so how would you how would you deal with with this idea that um, on on your position it doesn't seem like enemy love is grounded in God's character? Uh, do you think that's a fair qualification, or or how much you uh, distinguish that?
1: Yeah, I, I think b- b- before I answer that, I I might say first um, that you know what we what we think of as God, you know, when people talk about you know the character of God, um, often they're they're sort of basing that on their own personal feelings or values, and that's very culturally rooted. And so, um, you know, if you were to, um, you know, a, a conversation between a Western liberal Christian and a you know orthodox conservative muslim who lives in the middle east when they're talking about you know this is who my this is what my god looks like or this is what my god looks like what would scandalize the muslim would is not what is not what would scandalize the liberal christian and so there, there is definitely a, a cultural thing that's happening here where we sort of put our perspective and our experience and our background and we say to you know the God of scripture, well, that's not what I think God is. Um, and, and so I, I think there, there, there can be a, a bit of a sort of a hubris or reading in. And so, you know, I'm interested in trying to uh, come up with, with some, you know, some data about God, um, and then sort of let my feelings accommodate themselves to the data, as opposed to, here's here's how I feel, God, and this is who I need you to be. Um, and I understand that, you know, sometimes that can be, you know, emotionally difficult to, to, to find that, you know, I I thought, you know, I thought God was somebody who was going to love and accept everybody. And it turns out there's kind of a judgment factor here. Uh, But if it is, it is. And and you got to sort of, you know, work with that and and, and try to understand that as best as you can. But what I will say is that um, the Christian um, command for nonviolence is partly a response to God's decree that Christians, as opposed to theocratic Old Testament Jews, must reject violence. But I also would say that the decree of God is rooted in his nature. Um, And so I would say, you know, this is this may be getting a little into more high level theoretical theology and philosophy here, but I would say wrath is not a part of the basic nature of God. And the reason it's not a part of the basic nature of God is because God is eternal and we are not. And so to say that wrath is a part of God's nature is to imply that sin is eternal because without sin god would have nothing to be wrathful toward right now we're moving a little bit out of out of the bible i said and into like you know aristotle or whatever but uh or Aquinas. but um so, but but i think that it's you know wrath is not this sort of necessary quality of, of who god is um it is a essentially a reaction so it's a response to sin that comes later um love is different though because love is at least for the trinitarian conception of god which i hold uh, love is essential to who God is because God is Trinity. Uh, he's held together by love. Without love, he falls apart. Because you have three persons and one, uh, one God uh, that are sort of coexisting, co-inhering, and all this sort of theological language. Um, so I would say love is definitely more preeminent in God than wrath. So you know, wrath comes as a response to sin. It comes. It comes as a response of our how we victimize each other um but i would also say so does grace and forgiveness uh you know as paul informs us where sin abounded grace superabounded um or i think the king james has something like abounded all the more but, but the greek is more like superabounded right and so i think it's important to, to note that god is the gospel is about how god chooses to respond to us in love because he is love um and you know we deserve x but we get y um On the other hand, uh, you know, I do think, you know, you talk about being sort of someone who believes in eternal conscious torment. I take like annihilationist view myself, and I think it's biblical. But regardless, um, as much as universalism sounds nice and maybe God will surprise us and, you know, like He did Jonah and and be even more gracious than we expected him to be. um, But I think the biblical data suggests uh, judgment. And so I will say that um, the scripture seems to suggest that if we refuse to let our hearts be softened. By that love, by that grace, and we give into short-sighted, self-centeredness. I do think that we pay the penalty for sin, which is death. Um, and so let me see here. I, I, I think at the same time, you know, we need to distinguish between what we as creation creatures are, are expected to be and do versus God, who's creator. So, you know, Paul in Romans chapter twelve tells us that it isn't wrong for God to judge or to give people what they deserve. Um, But we aren't God. And so we have to behave as faithful creatures, trusting God to judge justly. He says, um, uh, do not repay evil for evil. Uh, Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath for it is written. It is mine to avenge. I will repay says the Lord. So for Paul, this is a, this command of nonviolence is for Christians, but the expectation is not that, you know, because God wants us to show grace and love as he does, that doesn't mean that God can't ever be a judge. And so there, you know, there, it, it gets a little bit complicated. So I would say it's rooted in the nature of God, but the nature of God, um, you know, also I think allows for the destruction of evil. And I, I don't think that's a bad thing.
0: So, uh, going back to something that you said earlier, um, you know, when you talk about, you don't believe that wrath is a, uh, I, I don't remember how you phrase it, but it's not a, an essential part of God.
1: Yeah. It's not, it's not, it's not, um, it's not, one of his maybe uh, eternal Intr- intrinsic. Okay.
0: Yeah. So uh, do you, do you adhere to divine simplicity by any chance?
1: Um, depending on how you define okay. it, I think I would say I do. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, uh, cause I was wondering if um, maybe the way that you would couch it as I th- I think through this is that, you know, if you don't believe that God adds anything to himself um, then even though we can say that he wasn't wrathful from eternity neither did he add wrath to himself. Wrath must be a component of some other essential characteristic. It must be a display of one of those attributes. Um, So would wrath be a display of love in some forms? So for example if there's Wrath and judgment uh even though it wasn't intended from the beginning, that is loving to put people out of existence who will not bow the knee or however you want to couch it
1: yeah I, I think I think it's probably loving for God to try to create a world where sin doesn't exist any longer, right, <laughs> and so I think uh, you know I don't know exactly where someone who holds to eternal conscious torment would go with that, but but yeah, as, as an annihilationist i I could make that argument i think um the more traditional response would be something like uh, maybe wrath is a, is rooted in holiness more than it is love, right? God is holy. He's good. Uh, You can kind of have this image of the, the sort of consuming fire that purifies some and then destroys others. Right. (laughs) Um, And so the question is not really uh, what the fire is doing, uh, but what you put into it. Um, So there's, there's different ways of sort of talking about this and looking at it, but, but I think we're, we're, we're moving a little bit into the realm of the theoretical as opposed to what scripture is explicitly saying. Um, But I think that's fine. We can have those conversations. I I just want to sort of be careful to couch what I'm saying scripture says versus what I'm thinking. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, All of it ends up going to the theoretical because we, we have limited answers straight from the Bible, but um, yeah. Interesting. Um, So moving a little bit away from, you know, the, the biblical text itself um, I'll talk a little bit about, Church history because one of the items that I think well I know tip the scales for me and I, I think tips the scales for a lot of other seekers who are coming to nonviolence and anarchism is is taking a look at the anti Nicene church you know the, the early church prior to Constantine 300 ish um, and, and I know that they influenced you as well from listening to some of your stuff and, and reading your book um, a, a historical grounding is is huge to helping us interpret what is true because like you said we do have cultural lenses through which we view things and hearing what the disciples of Christ and the disciples of the disciples who walked with Christ uh were were taught is helpful you know to to get more you know, to get closer to the horse's mouth um at the same time you know the early church has some some I don't know if you'd say anomalies or um
1: strange beliefs yeah yeah <laughs>
0: strange and and um you know i would say sinful or, or wrong beliefs um mm. you know some of it in regard to sexuality um and, and marriage you know origin castrated himself um and, and you've got some really misogynistic views uh about women um so
1: so some so negative views about the body i would say and sex in general yeah, yeah. yeah
0: so so how do you uh how do you view the anti-Nicene church in regard to Christian anarchism, nonviolence? How have they been influential to you? But then at the same time, how do we look back to them? It, Cause it feels like cherry picking sometimes when I'm like, Oh yeah, the anti-Nicene church, they're great. They're, they're univocal on, uh, on nonviolence. And then you're like, yeah, but they also thought women were ontologically inferior. A lot of, a lot of them.
1: Yeah. I, I guess I'd have to look at certain other beliefs, like, like those kind of, views about sex or women or something to try to determine whether they are um, universal or virtually universal. Um, I was just looking at um, Augustine's commentary on Galatians. um, And I was reading a section where he was talking about these sort of differences that Paul talks about between men and women and uh, masters and slaves and so on and so forth. And he actually is very clear in it that the differences between these groups is not, ontological, right? It's not like there's some real significance between them, but there are these cultural expectations and that these sort of guidelines for how to live are more about, um, you know, uh, as he says, you know, lest the name and teaching of God be blasphemed uh, because God desires all to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. And so um, Augustine understands Paul, and, and I think he's right, of giving some of these sort of household codes and guidelines as a way to sort of say, listen, I know that I've told you, and and this is true, that in Christ, there is no male and female and those differences don't really matter, but we live in a culture that sees it differently. And we, you know, people who don't understand could be scandalized by this and we don't want to cause scandal unnecessarily. And so let's, you know, just kind of take it, take it slow and easy and and be cool. Right. Um, So I don't know. Anyway, that's kind of a long detour, but just to say, I don't know um, how universal some of these more oddball beliefs are, but you can certainly trace trends uh, like sort of suspicion of sex, uh, this sort of attitude that maybe sex is inherently bad. Uh, I don't know that I don't know that all the Antinocene fathers would say that, but you know, some suggest that, right? I do think that um, nonviolence and uh, noncooperation in the military seems to be virtually universal uh, among the fathers. Now, there's also evidence that some. Uh, Christians served as soldiers. Um, I think Tertullian, early Tertullian, very early Tertullian makes a statement about Christians serving in the military and sees that as not a bad thing. It's, it's, it's evidence that, you know, we're not these sort of people who are totally against, uh, what Rome is doing. And so you need to stop treating us as if we're, uh, these rebels or whatever. But it doesn't take long for Tertullian to sort of go along with whatever all the other church fathers are saying and basically say, you know, not only is violence wrong, but you you can't even swear an oath to Caesar to, to join the military because what you're saying is I put Caesar above God. Uh, and incidentally, a similar oath is also said by those who joined the United States military. Um, and so I, I would say that scripture is the only infallible authority for the Christian faith. Um I think people look at the Antinocene fathers and Antinocene for anybody who's who's not familiar with that term are the fathers, church fathers who were active prior to the council of Nicaea. So that was like 325. So we're talking about the first, you know, two or 300 years of the church. So the earliest Christians. So I think people say, well, these are the earliest Christians. So because they're earlier, they probably are closer to what the apostles said, which means they're also closer to what Jesus said. And so that means we should give them more weight. Um, and I think that maybe so. Maybe we should give them more weight. I mean, maybe maybe they maybe they have a, a you know more weight than like you know Thomas Aquinas writing in like the twelfth century or whatever. Uh, but um, I think our standard is not the Antinomian fathers. Our standard is scripture, and you know the diversity of opinion, the fact that they get things wrong means that every so often we're going to have to back up and say, okay, that sound, I, I, you know, I don't think that sounds right. That doesn't sound like what scripture is telling me. Um, and so, yeah, I wouldn't cherry pick. Um, what I would do is I would say uh, the fathers are, seem to be universal on this point. It's strange that we don't really have any um, anybody who, who goes another direction. So that suggests something to me, that, that there's some weight there toward this position if nobody seems to have thought to have challenged it. that that pretty much all these guys who are influential in the early church um, are saying, yeah, this is what Jesus meant. And this is what we're supposed to do. Um, But, but I would say like any position, whether it's first century, second, 20th, 21st, the way that we correct our theological biases um, is to check them against a careful reading of scripture because they have biases and so do we. Um, And so the, when I, when I read the early church fathers or, or any theology, I think of it as a conversation, um, you know, these other people are also filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, I think we, we think of in terms of, think of it individualistic, like I have the Holy Spirit, you have the Holy Spirit, but it's this kind of individual thing. And I don't need to talk to you. I don't need anybody to tell me anything because I have the Holy Spirit. But it's we who have the Holy Spirit. It's a collective pronoun. And so I think what that means is that there's going to be people who, uh, because either God gave them a certain gift or insight, or because they live in a culture that's different than ours, so they can see things that we don't see and vice versa, um, that we actually need each other because we can correct each other's biases. Um, so that's, that's in general how I think about the, the church fathers is, I want to read this because maybe they've seen something that I missed. They're not living in 21st century America, so I'm willing to bet that they caught something in the text that I, I didn't catch. Um but they could also be wrong. Right. So, um, yeah,
0: yeah. No, I, I think that's really uh, helpful. You know, so I, I said at the moment I adhere to, to ECT, you know, I would say, I would say I'm like 30% on it and I might be like, you know, 40, uh, okay. 40% ECT, 50% uh, uh, annihilationism and 10% Uh, universalism, but it's more, even though I'm, I'm more on uh, annihilationism there, there's not enough. There's a lot of, yeah, it's just, it's more like, that's my default position. That's what my community is. Um, I I need more, you know, for a paradigm shift. Um, But yeah, the, the early church fathers are, are huge. And I I remember I was reading, I think it was Nissa's on the soul and the resurrection. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this doesn't sound right. It sounds like he's, he's a universalist and <laughs> yeah. you go and you like look into it Yeah, it was like, he can't be a universalist because he's, he's like, you know, a, a major church father. It's not just somebody like on the periphery. And um, yeah, you start looking in and, and you realize that they had a, a wide variety of views, whether it's in regard to hell um, or uh, yeah, c- certain things with women, um, lots, lots of different views uh, or, or even biblical hermeneutics, and and using, um, uh, just viewing things more literally or viewing things more broadly, and so looking at looking at the early church um, will just kind of open up a can of worms if you if you haven't done that before, and and I think even if even if it doesn't help you to nail down a position, it uh, it can kind of open up doorways for you to pursue something that you wouldn't otherwise pursue and give you humility for people who who believe something different than you.
1: Yeah, yeah, it it's kind of funny because, you know, there there are people in the early church who would fundamentally disagree with like a guy like Origen, who I think we're probably going to talk about later. Um uh but they also can't help but respect him, right? And you know, a, a guy like um, you know, uh, Jerome for example. So, um Origen wrote so much and we have some of it, but there's so much of it that we don't have because he just wrote so darn much. And, uh, but thankfully some of the stuff we do have is basically because Jerome, when he would write commentaries, he would just lift from origin because he just respected origin so much. Um, and so like Jerome ends up being this sort of witness to origin, even though on so many issues, he doesn't, he doesn't hold to origins views or positions on a lot of things. Uh, but he just, he can't, he can't deny, you know, origins intellect and his, um, and his you know, thought process. But anyway.
0: So, um, I uh, there's another thing that I, I really struggle uh, with in regards to the anarchist community, and and I know that you struggle with it too. Um, and it's it's not uh, only that th- there tends to be this kind of liberal approach to the Bible, which is is kind of difficult to work through coming from a, a more conservative background. Um, but what's really just I, I can't stand it is that. Uh, a lot of them seem to throw out you know the whole skeleton of biblical understanding the the backbone of Christianity. Um, I know you recently spoke with Dr. Krista Yiannopoulos, and uh, it it struck me in his book and talking with him that you know he he says that look most Christian anarchists you know like Tolstoy and I mean everybody else, either throw out miracles in the resurrection or they don 't really think it 's important it 's not central or it's just not important. So that that's a problem for me. You know, when Paul says that, uh, you know, if if you lose the resurrection um, and the cross, like you you don't have Christianity. Yeah. So h- how do you see this loss of biblical seriousness um, as, as a loss to the foundations of nonviolence and Christian anarchism? Like, what are what are Christian anarchists who for whatever reason, uh, whether it's it's to kind of bring peace and say, well, I'm not going to make the cross kind of a central issue, or or just because they don't believe it. What do you think that they lose in that in terms of a moral foundation or, or other foundation? And how do we as Christians relate to other Christian anarchists if they can't keep central the most important part of Christianity?
1: Yeah, I would say... If we aren't grounding our faith in Christ and the scriptures, which he inspired and which testify to him, um, our faith isn't Christian. Um, uh, Jim Wallace of uh, Sojourners, the kind of the Christian political left, uh, he, he wrote a book called God's Politics. And I, I still love the subtitle for it, even if I don't always agree with what's in the book. Um, the subtitle was... Um, how the right gets it wrong and the left doesn't get it. (laughs) And he was talking about the political left and political right. But I think this applies to the theologically conservative and progressive as well. So conservatives claim to be basing their faith in scripture, but they often don't take their own imperative seriously. They get lazy in their exegesis because on some level, they don't want to be changed or challenged by scripture. They want to make it conform to what they already believe. So they have the right foundation, you know. I believe in you know the the creeds and uh, the you know the the infallibility or inerrancy or whatever of scripture, uh, but then they they build a bad house on good foundation. They get it wrong, you know. But theological liberals, even when they get the details right, when the house looks good, first of all, it's almost by accident because it's not grounded in anything, and they they also don't really get what the Christian theological project is supposed to be. So liberal Christian anarchists like Tolstoy don't have a correcting mechanism for their theology. It's really just, this sounds good to me. And, you know, they're, they're taking from scripture what they like and they're ignoring what they don't. So on a foundational level, they're not submitting to Christ and they're building their Christian theology on the sand. And so, um, you know, they don't get it. The right gets it wrong, the left doesn't get it. And, and so Paul, I think, the Apostle Paul would say to liberals like Tolstoy who deny the resurrection, if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is, is futile. The center of our faith is Christ. It's not pacifism. It's not anarchism. Uh, but if we're thinking well about what it means to put Christ at the center of our lives, I think that's going to have an immense impact on how we think about violence in the state.
0: All right. So would you say that you identify with Christian anarchists who aren't Christian?
1: <laughs> um, so I think um, group affiliations are instrumental some extent, right? We, we align with the group um, because of some shared goal we have. So I share some goals with libertarians who are secular, but insofar as we're working toward those goals, I identify with them. I, I can say we're working on this together. You know, um, you know, if I were, I just use the house illustration. If I were building a house, I wouldn't care what the religions are of my co-laborers. I would just want to know that they share the goal of building the house. They know how to do it. We've both seen the same <laughs> um, uh, blueprints and and we're, we're working together. We're simpatico. So I think if, if you know, if you share my goals, we can work together on those goals. I think Christians have learned a lot from non-Christians and from those on the margins of Christian orthodoxy. Uh, I think we've even sharpened our views by engaging with heretics, right? So people like Arius who denied the, um, the, the deity, the divinity of Jesus, uh, we wouldn't have the Nicene Creed today um, because we wouldn't have been forced to look at scripture carefully and systematically kind of. Describe what it's saying, um if aries hadn't come and said, Well, I think that Jesus was created, I think the Son was created, and so you know I think we we learn even from people who say things that are wrong, um let alone people who say things that are right, um but they're just you know they're all, they're on a different you know they're on a different bus going to a different going to, going to a different direction or whatever um, but I think that raises the question, how do I know if someone's on my team or not? How do I define a Christian? and I think at the core. A Christian is someone who follows Christ. Um, I think the word Christian has ideological content as well. So Christians believe things that non Christians don't. So we believe that Christ was incarnated, crucified, died for our sins, was buried, and on the third day rose again. Um, That means that Christians can look at others claiming that name who either aren't behaving correctly or they're denying some essential truth and say, hey, you aren't meeting the definition. Get it together, buddy. You know, you're you're claiming to be a Christian, but you're, you're not, you're not there. You're, you're off. You need correct. (laughs) Of course. Correct. Um, I do though, at the same time, I would say that uh, working out exactly what we should believe and exactly how we should behave is tricky. So I think we should be gracious to each other. Um, And uh, especially as we move out of these sort of central beliefs categories and and into like application and secondary beliefs, you know, I think about something like baptism, you know, pretty much all Christians, um, except I think the, Uh, uh, Quakers uh, practice baptism, right? Um, So that's something that we kind of universally share. Um, But we differ about how and when it should be done. Do we baptize babies? Do we baptize adults? Um, Do you sprinkle? Do you immerse? Do you pour? Um, So those are theological differences, but they're not central, right? So I think the most central Christian beliefs are what we say, like in the Apostles and Nicene creeds. And I think that's a good place to start because it's short, it's to the point, and it reflects what Christians of all times and places have seen as the core biblical message about what God did in Christ. If you're Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, uh, Protestant, even I think uh, some of the groups that split off a little bit later, like the maybe the Assyrian Church of the East or something, even they would sort of say, Yeah, Apostle Nicene Creeds, we're, we're all on board on that. So I think it's good to have sort of this, this sort of this, some of these centralizing principles that can kind of help us a little bit. Um, I think. Um, I will say that the centrality of the Christian message also presumes, to some extent, the inspiration of scripture on which that message is based. Um, and that raises a question of what does inspiration mean? Um, I don't think that it means what Origen or Greg Boyd have said it means, like where inspiration practically means that we don't really believe what scripture actually teaches, but we believe some hidden message underneath the surface that only we can find. Um, and, but, but at the same time, I think Boyd and Origen are trying to affirm inspiration. Boyd in particular is, Boyd is saying, I don't want to drop inspiration, but I don't like some things that scripture says. So I'm going to try to find some very convoluted way that I can say I'm affirming inspiration, but I'm also getting rid of the passages I don't like. Um, And and I think he probably means well, even if he's a little self-deluded. So um, (laughs) that sounds kind of mean. I actually like Boyd a lot, but Boyd's talking about working on the same, sort of the same projects. I mean, Boyd has written some excellent books on uh, modalism, the oneness Pentecostals. He's written great books on apologetics. Um, so I don't want to crap on Boyd. He also wrote, um, uh, um, um, the myth of a Christian nation, which is really excellent for thinking about some of these political issues. Uh, but anyway, I digress. I, I since I'm crapping on Boyd, I wanted to stop and sort of say something nice. Um, because, because Boyd is a co laborer He's a brother in Christ, despite our disagreements. Um, maybe people who are more liberal than Boyd, guys like Tolstoy, Maybe we could consider them our cousins in Christ. You know, there, there's a family resemblance, but we're also kind of in different families. Um, so um, I'll, I'll say one more thing on this, which is um, whether someone meets the theological definition of a Christian, which is kind of what I've been talking about. You know, how do you, you know, are you in the box? Do you, do you fit? Are we in the same group? Can we take the same name? Um, that's a different question than who is and who isn't saved. I would like to think that God will be gracious to me about what I've gotten wrong theologically. And so I want to be gracious to others who I think are wrong. It's not my job to judge who's going to have eternal life. I think when when Jesus tells says not to judge, I think that's primarily what he's talking about. That if I come up with some really um, uh, you know stringent um, uh, sort what of looking for purity test or something for somebody, uh, and then and then in some way I don't live up to that. <laughs> Um, Jesus Jesus informs us that we're going to be judged by not living up to the standards that we impose on others, right? Um, So I want to be very careful about that. Um, I I want to say, hey, here's what I think scripture says. I'd like to try to get you back in line if I can, but this is ultimately where you go and what happens is between you and God. I can't, I'm not your judge, right? Um, But I can say, you know, what you're saying, I think is out of bounds. And if you're claiming to follow Christ, uh, that means believing X, Y, and Z, About him living in that truth, and so I think you can do better. So um, I think that's what I'm really trying to do when I call Christians, conservative Christians, to nonviolence, and liberal Christians to hold to Jesus's own view of Scripture.
0: Yeah, Uh, and I I like the house analogy. I think that's that's extremely helpful, and it encompasses the way that I feel. You know, especially in regard to things like like uh, social justice at the moment, Mm -hmm. where it's like I can just look at a both sides and just think, man, you're missing, you're missing this piece and you're missing that piece. Um, and, and so, yeah, I'm going to steal that analogy and use it in the future. Um, so my, my last question that I, I have on the books and we can talk about more if, if there's something that, that comes to mind and have more of a discussion, but, um, and, and you, you sort of already answered this, but so you mentioned Boyd, and I'll bring up Giles, Keith Giles. I know you you talked with him as well. Uh, those are two individuals who, uh, from from what I've grown up believing, um, I diverge from them in some significant ways. Yeah. Um, yet I feel a closer kinship with them than I do with most people in my denomination who are not nonviolent, uh, mm. who are are very pro government. Uh, pretty conservative, um, who racist. I don't know if I can say that, <laughs>
1: Maybe, maybe. Uh, but
0: it, yeah, the, there's plenty of that that goes on, um, whether it's, you know, overt or covert, both uh, just an aversion to social justice in a lot of places. And so I just, I agree with my group theologically but, uh, you know, like you say, they have a, a, bad, a bad house on a good foundation. And so, really, in a lot of ways, I, I identify so much more with uh, Boyd and Giles who are doing what feels like real work. I know, I know Boyd talked about, like, they open up their church and have, uh, you know, homeless people come in and, and stay overnight there. And uh, they, they just do those sorts of things. And they're gracious towards other people with different views. My group is very... Closed, you know. If you don't believe baptism is a big deal to us, to to my group, um, a, a very big deal, and you can go onto uh, Reformed Pub and uh, a, and find lots of uh, vitriolic arguments about really minor things. Funny story, not really funny, but um, you know, in in our denomination, um, our pastor came back from uh, Presbyterian General Assembly one one year, and he said, "Whew, it was a good year." Because uh, you can tell it's a good year when they fight over uh, the method of communion. and Because our church had done intinction, which is just you you go and you rip off the bread, you dip it in the cup, and then you eat it. And he's like, we know it's a good year because they were fighting over something silly like that. Um, but seriously, you're spending a bunch of time fighting over the mode of communion. Uh, it just seems kind of ridiculous to me. So how do you... How do you feel your kinship? How inclusive should you be in the work? Because my denomination, um, our missions organization, it, which I'm a part of, they're a lot more open. Like we'll work with with charismatic groups and, and other groups that if people who supported uh, some of those missionaries found out that they were working with might not be super happy. You know, it's not like a secret. They don't keep it a secret. They would tell them if they asked, but it's not like we're going to go and blast it out there. Um, Mm -hmm. so how do you view kinship with, with other Christians and, and who do you feel a kinship with and how do you, um, determine who you're closer to? Who's your cousin and who's your your brother?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I, I was on another podcast recently where we were talking about like political polarization and uh, specifically like within like the libertarian movement where people just kind of just sort of lose their minds about the fact that there are people who believe this, that, or the other, and there are enemies and so on and so forth. Um, And, you know, I'm one of those people who I think of myself as like, um like ideologically radical, but dispositionally moderate. <laughs> and, um, you know, so to me, like, I feel like a lot of people on the left would say something, you know, would be against like labeling and, 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 you know, trying to de- demarcate, you know, this is what Christian means. This is what that means, you know, whatever it means. means. Um, I think labels are useful because I, I think it helps us to sort, I mean, I think because I think words are useful. Labels are just words, words, name things. They help us to categorize, to understand, to conceptualize, to say, this is X, this is not X. Um, and so, you know, um, I'm a, you know, so like I, I, I'm a vegetarian. If I meet another vegetarian, I can say, Hey, we're both vegetarians. This is a word that we both share. This is a label that fits us that doesn't fit people who eat meat. Um, does that mean that we agree on everything? No, it just means that in this one area we're, we're simpatico, right? And so, uh, you know, guys like Boyd and guys like Giles, um, I would call Christians. Um, I think that they are seeking to follow Christ. I think that their views of, of scripture are malformed. Uh, and I've, I've, I've told Giles that <laughs> I have had a conversation with Greg Boyd at this point, but uh, I did try to reach out to him when I, when I wrote um, uh, the, the, this book Unhitched, where I, I interact with Boyd's uh, work and with Keith Giles's work and with Andy Stanley's work, because they're both uh, in sort of, or they're all three sort of involved in sort of a project of kind of cutting Christ off from the Old Testament. And I think that that project, that unhitching project is a bad project. Um, and, uh, I'm, I'm happy to explain why. <laughs> and, but at the same time, you know, um, Giles, you know, is also a guy who I know his, um, um, his home church has been really involved in like helping homeless people, feeding people. Um, I think that's a wonderful project. I mean, even if he was, if even if he was an atheist or, or whatever, I would think that was a great project and I would, I would applaud him for that. Um, so I think to me, you know, these labels are kind of important because they help us to understand. Um, you know, I think people. Some people are concerned because you can use a label to to exclude in a mean or nasty way, and I don't want to exclude in a mean or nasty way. But I, I do want to talk about well, this is what this means, and so if we're going to have a conversation that's in any way, um, um you know, comprehensible or, or whatever, we need to be able to use words that mean things. Um, and so like I said, yeah, I think Boyd is a Christian. Um, I think. He's not a Christian who affirms Jesus's view of scripture. And so I'm happy to say that. Um, But I'm also, I'd be happy to, uh, you know, if we lived in the same city, I'd be happy to go with him and and help feed people. Um, That's a project we can work on together because we, we we share some things and we agree on some things. Um, And I guess I'm also happy to call him a Christian. I just think he's wrong on some things. Um, And, you know, there are Christians in my church who, um, you know, I went to a. I keep. I'll start. I'll start one thing and then I move somewhere else. Sorry, I went to to a a pretty conservative Bible college. So I, you talked about your own kind of background or whatever. Um, mine was at least not my background was. I guess my 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 Bible college was conservative, holiness, Wesleyan, Arminian, Methodist. Lots of words, right? But the one thing I liked about going to a school that was very conservative, um, that wore inerrancy on their sleeves. Um, but was, but also practice things more conservatively than I would. Um, is that we had common ground. Um, I could have a conversation with a professor or a fellow student, and what I was, what I, I could hold them to something. <laughs> I could pin them down, and I could say, "Well, you say uh, that war is good, violence is good. Well, here's what Jesus said," and I'd pin them down to it, and they they'd wriggle and try to get out from under it. But um, the fact that we could sort of have that conversation, I, I had another professor who with a fellow student took me out to lunch to convince me of uh, eternal conscious torment. Um, <laughs> and we had a good conversation about it. And I said, here's what scripture says, guys, you know, let's, let's have a conversation. I don't think you guys are living up to it. Um, so those are people I also disagreed with, but you know, we shared some things we disagreed on other things. Um, and uh, as far as uh, whether I or my conservative teachers or Keith Giles or Greg Boyd is going to be in the new heavens and the new earth is not for me to decide. Um, but but we can talk about the labels and the words and what they mean. You know, somebody who is theologically a Christian who believes, who says, I believe in the Nicene Creed and this, that, and the other thing. Uh, you know, maybe that person is not a Christian in the eyes of God, or maybe somebody who doesn't line up to all the right things. will nevertheless be in the new heavens and the new earth. That's not for me to decide, but I think we can have conversations about what's out of bounds, what's contradictory, uh, what's living up to what Jesus said and what's not. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. That's too uh, long winded? No, 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 it's good. Um, yeah, I, I find this community so interesting. Um, cause like I said, there, there are a lot of liberal, uh, people in the Christian anarchist community, but, um especially more in the pacifist community, but also a little bit in the, the Christian anarchist community. Um, there are also a lot of like Mennonites, like more conservative mm-hmm. Mennonites. So I've, I've interviewed uh, a couple um, more conservative people there too, and who would not be, probably not be happy that, you know, I'm drinking a beer. I actually had sure. one... um one uh person when i was w- trying to do that social media thing that i'm so bad at trying to do these little short tiktok videos uh to summarize episodes and i was wearing a hat and uh one one person said uh it would be really good if you didn't wear a hat while you're teaching you know and i was like okay so <laughs> sorry i should have told you at the beginning but you're going to <laughs> Yeah so it's it's just so interesting you know that you've got people who minimize the resurrection, but you've also got people who, you know, might be wearing long skirts and, and, uh, not want you to wear hats and and drink alcohol. Um, it's such, it's just such a diverse community. And I I think that's one thing that I like about it. It's something that I've noticed for a while is missing in Christianity is that we're, we're very particularized and, uh, focus on our denominations and I like being able to talk to people, but I definitely wanted to, to talk with you. I read unhitched. Um, it was, it was a pretty short read. Like it, I, I was expecting to, you know, it's, it to take a while, but you, you summed everything up in a, a fairly short space. I mean, it's not short, short, but it's, it's a fairly short space. You, you make the arguments concise gets the point. Um, so I enjoyed it. I thought you laid it out well, but, um, yeah. I wanted to talk specifically about this because I haven't talked with any of the the other conservatives uh, about this issue, but it's kind of a, a glaring issue in regard to, to, to this issue.
1: Well, yeah. And, and I, I appreciate you reading the book and, and, and what you said about it. I, I have a tendency to hate books that are longer than they need to be. I like to read, but I like to have read sometimes more than I like to have to read. <laughs> and so for me, like if I'll start a book and And it's like so repetitious. It's like okay, you've said this. I get it. You don't have to keep telling me. You say you know if I if I really need to hear it again, I'll start the book again. Um, And and so I try to be try to be kind of tight with it. But speaking of, it's kind of funny you mentioned Mennonites because Mennonite is also a word that means a lot of things now, right? I mean, there are the the conservative Mennonites who dress conservatively, and then there are the liberal Mennonites who you know. believe all kinds of things. Right.
0: Yeah. Um, It blew blew my mind when I found out that uh, there were pro LGBTQ Mennonites. Yeah.
1: yeah, That uh, that was something that that came to my mind.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. And, you know, and then there's, there's going to be people who kind of cross over a little bit who are maybe kind of pro LGBTQ, but still believe in the resurrection of Christ. (laughs) Right. And so, um, you know, it's, I think that, but I think that labels are helpful because words are helpful. Labels are just words. You know, if I hold up a banana, a, a Coke can and I say can, You know, that's not I'm not I'm not limiting it in a nasty way. I'm not being mean. I'm not I'm not, um, um, you know, talking down to it. I'm just saying this is a can. And so when I say, you know, I think Mennonite's one of those things, too, where I'm sure the conservatives are really frustrated that people who don't agree with them on anything that's traditionally Mennonite are calling themselves Mennonites. But we can introduce words like liberal Mennonite and conservative Mennonite to help us kind of clarify those things. And those labels are helpful. If if I want to look up, uh, if I want to find a community online of Christian anarchists, I have to use the labels Christian and anarchist to find them. Um, So I don't think that's mean or nasty, but I I think we just need to be, we just need to be clear about what we agree on and what we disagree on, where we are simpatico and where we're not. And, you know, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with having friends who believe things that I think are nuts. Um, But, but also, you know. I don't know, but, uh, but I'll also be clear that they, they think X and I think Y and there's a difference and we're not in the same box here. So anyway.
0: All right. Well, that's, uh, <laughs> that's all the questions that I have for you. If there's anything uh, that kind of stuck out to you that, that um, you want to say or ask or, or discuss, I'm open to that, but um, yeah. that's all I've got for the moment.
1: But, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, it feels kind of weird that we were talking about, um, Scripture and nonviolence, and I ended up with a, a defense of labels. But um, I, I think, um, <laughs> in one way, it kind of sums up what I'm trying to do in general with my theology, which is let's be clear, um, let's talk about what Scripture says and doesn't say. Let's talk about what being a Christian entails and and what it sort of suggests we shouldn't do. Um, but but also, I can you know, we we should show each other some grace. Um, you know, we should be patient with each other. If I think you're wrong, maybe it would be better if I tried to persuade you instead of call you a heretic and shout you down and talk about how terrible you are online. Um, And so I I think, um, you know, that that's kind of the, you know, I think of myself as in some ways trying to kind of bridge some of these things because, you know, somebody who hears that I'm a, a, you know, nonviolent, pacifists, anarchists, annihilationist, would probably assume that I'm a liberal because I don't believe in things that uh, Protestants traditionally believe, right? But, but I'm, I'm trying to be rooted in scripture, just like my Protestant friends are. Um, so I, and I think that's good. I think that's, I think that's a good thing. And listen, even if you are listening and you're a liberal and you don't agree with me on any of this stuff, um, I would at least encourage you to stop saying <laughs> that scripture uh, encourages violence, because I think ultimately you would probably rather win over your conservative friends to your position, even if you don't persuade them about your view of the Bible, maybe you would like them to say, "Hey, you know, I've been thinking about it, and you had some really good points about what Jesus or Paul or or Peter said about nonviolence." Um, and so, um, I, I wouldn't draw these. I wouldn't draw lines and separations where they don't exist. I, I don't think this is one of those areas. I don't think that nonviolence is a liberal position when it comes to scripture because scripture teaches it. And so, to be conservative about scripture is to follow nonviolence.
0: <laughs> all right. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you uh, you taking time out of your day to do this.
1: No, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it, Derek.
0: That's all for now. So peace. And because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it.